in the book of Acts. Last Sunday, we got to see how the grace of God, how wide is the grace of God. It is, it is a grace that began in Jerusalem, but it's going to the ends of the earth. And you see that, we saw that last Sunday in the story of the African man from a far country. Um, he hears the good news about Jesus. He believes and goes home rejoicing. Grace goes wide. This morning, in the passage today, we're going to see how deep is the grace of God. And it is a grace so deep that it reaches the enemies of the Lord, the most like hardened antagonist. We're going to meet a man who is dead set against Jesus Christ and the whole movement in his name. And the grace of God reaches him, of all people. Beth will read the passage for us. Let's listen to the word of God. Okay, our scripture today is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
King Louis XIV, the, the sun king of France, once made this observation. It's about power dynamics in the royal court. He said, every time I bestow a vacant office, every time I give a position to someone in the royal court, I make a hundred jealous persons and one ingrate. It's a principle of the laws of power. A king has to be careful about his friends. The king's friend has the king's trust. Um, But what so often happens is that the king's friend uh, begins to expect more and more. uh, and, And more and more favors. And he'll begin to get jealous if, if others advance more than this friend. Uh, he, he might become entitled. He might try to manipulate the friendship with the king. But an enemy, an enemy uh, can be very useful in the service of a king. An enemy really deserves nothing. Um, an, an enemy would expect nothing. But when an enemy receives grace, then, then he will go to the ends of the earth for the one who has pardoned him. And that's a quote from the book, uh, The 48 Laws of Power. We're continuing in the book of Acts together. And in in the background, the the Lord God, the great king, with all the power in in, in the cosmos, is advancing this movement. And the passage we're looking at today is about how the Lord calls an enemy into his service, recruits an enemy into his service, who is going to go to the ends of the earth for him. So let me separate my page here. There we go. So uh, the passage opens with a man named Saul. Later on in his life, he's going to become much better known uh, and better known by history by his Greek name, which is Paul. But he's called Saul in our passage, so I'm I'm going to call him Saul throughout. Now, the first thing you learn about Saul is that he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And I can't help but think about Darth Vader, okay, breathing, that menacing breathing. And he's like... All, 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 he's dear, all he wants to do is like lift up Christians off the ground by the neck, imprison them, end them. What Saul hates more than anything is Jesus and the people who follow him. And at this point, the movement of, of, of Jesus is called the way. That's, that's interesting. Verse 2, it's the way. The way following Jesus, who himself, he called himself the way the truth, and the life, Jesus said. The way, it began as a movement in Jerusalem. The religious leaders even said to them, they made this accusation against the apostles. They said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching about this man. And in their view, this was heretical teaching. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, he claimed to have a greater authority than them, And he walked into the temple and acted like he owned the place. And what else? He he claimed equality with God. Insanity. It's insane. Eventually, the religious leaders have had enough of this, of all of this. And an 
intense persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. Um, A man named Stephen becomes the first martyr. His story is in Acts chapter 7. And we're told that Saul, the same man we meet here, Saul was there watching and approving of Stephen's death. Now, this Saul is so zealous, he's so, like, extra, that he's not only after the disciples in Jerusalem, he's got his sights on Damascus. And Damascus, I, I looked on Google Map, Damascus is 270 kilometers north of Jerusalem. Now, Damascus was, that's an important city, for sure it is. But, I mean, that's far. That's far. From us to Kingston is not 270 kilometers. Okay, Paul is on a longer trip. And there is a highway from Jerusalem to Damascus, but it's a walking highway. That's how people did it in those days. Saul is not only, he's not only an enemy of the Christian movement, What the passage is showing you, what you're meant to see here, is that he is the most intense kind of enemy. He's like the most zealous enemy of Jesus and his followers. But he's not the only one either. He's a very intense, a very vivid kind of dramatic picture of an enemy of God, but he's not the only one. Listen to what he wrote, the the, the same man. Listen to what he wrote many years later. Listen to his insight into the human condition. Here's what he said. I've often told you, you Philippians, I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Okay, Saul of Tarsus is an enemy. That's true. But he belongs to a whole human race that is at enmity with their creator, according to the word of God. In my house these days, we are uh, reading Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I tend to like subtlety in things that I read, but... um, Anyway, the main character is named Christian, okay? And he's on, he's on this journey from his, his hometown, which is called the City of Destruction, um, the sweet hometown, to the heavenly city. That's where he's going, the celestial city. And he passes through places like the, the Hill of Difficulty and the Valley of Humiliation and Vanity Fair, he passes through. Now, this was surprising to me. You might expect that the most dangerous place in Pilgrim's Progress would be called, like, the City of Doom or the, or the, the Castle of Certain Death. But in, in the whole story, you know what the most hostile place is to Christian and his companion, whose name is Faithful? Um, the most hostile place, the most dangerous place is Vanity Fair, Picture in your mind a huge amusement park with all kinds of rides and and bright colors and lights with bright tents and banners and a glittering market that's full of all kinds of merchandise and all kinds of entertainment, every delight to the eyes and the body. John Bunyan calls it 
the lusty fair, vanity fair. Now you ask, how is that an enemy stronghold? How is that a place filled with enemies? Just having fun, right? One way to look at this is um, to ask the question, why did God create human beings? The Westminster Catechism, uh, this was a, a document written to teach the basics of the Christian faith, and it was written in 1647, close to the same time that Pilgrim's Progress was written. And here's question number one in the Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What's the chief end of humanity? Why did God make us? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now that means, it means that every created thing in the world is meant to show the goodness, the power, the beauty of the creator and most of all, human beings. Because in the whole creation, human beings alone have, have this capacity to appreciate beauty and goodness and truth. Human beings, the whole creation alone, have a, have a very complex language to be able to reflect on these things and, and, and conceive abstract thoughts and to praise and exalt things, most of all, in the Creator, and you. This is why you were created, to delight in God and to enjoy God forever. But what happens in Vanity Fair? What happens is a, a complete redefinition of the human purpose, entire redefinition, so that the, the chief end of man becomes something like to glorify the self and to enjoy pleasures forever. You can only serve one master, Jesus said. And this is why in another place the word of God says in the book of James, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To be an enemy of God, you don't need to persecute Christians. That's one way that this can look. That's, that's how Saul of Tarsus looks. But far more common, far more common, and in the city of Toronto, what's common is you just live in vanity fair. Jesus said, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you have a home address, but where does your heart live? If your greatest treasure in life is the entertainment, the merchandise, the pleasures of the body, the delights of the eyes, if that's your greatest treasure, then your heart lives in Vanity Fair. And you might be a religious person. There's, there's a church in Vanity Fair, I have to imagine. There is. You might be a religious person, but your, your heart is opposed to God's purpose in your life. To put it another way, you're God's enemy. 
It's very strong words. But we, we're in a large room here today, and I trust that there are some here who need to hear that and to consider that and reflect on that. Now, I know many of you. I know many of you personally. And I'm convinced that you are sincere in your Christian faith. But like me, if you're like me, you have this temptation also to have one eye on the celestial city that you're headed towards, pilgrim, and you've got one eye on Vanity Fair, and your heart is divided. Your heart is drawn to that place of enmity against the Lord. And I want to remind you, I want to remind myself, that everything in Vanity Fair is passing away, and it cannot satisfy you. Not only that, Vanity Fair will bind you. It will bind you, not with physical bonds like in verse 2 in our passage, but the bondage of your heart, which is far more dangerous because you don't even know it. You don't even recognize it, that it's happening. Now, we're looking at the book of Acts, and what's unique about this book of Acts is it shows you again and again, and here in our passage, the basic paradigm for how an enemy of God comes on side, comes on to God's side. And what's, what we see here is, is um, well, the word is conversion, conversion. What we see here are four elements. They're the four basic elements in every conversion story, no matter how miraculous that story might be or no matter how mundane that story might be. Four elements. They are the witness of Jesus, resurrected, repentance, a new vocation to carry his name, and fourth, baptism. All those four. I'd like to walk through those four briefly um, after I share with you a quick story. I was doing some reading in uh, the history of China recently and uh, in the Middle Ages. In the year 949, Emperor Taizu ascended the throne, and this was the beginning of the Song Dynasty. And the land at this time was not united the way it was today. There were many um, smaller rebel kingdoms and like warring factions and generals. One kingdom was led by a man named Qian Shu, and his kingdom was defeated by the armies of the emperor. Uh, But even in defeat, Qian Shu was plotting against the emperor, conspiracy, um, how to murder him. Now, the emperor learned about this, and he summoned Qian Shu to his court. And to everyone's surprise, instead of arrest or execute Qian Shu on the spot, Emperor Taizu honored him in the presence of all the, of, of all the court. And he gave him a package and gave him the instruction, halfway on your journey home, open that. Go home. So on his return journey, Jian Xu followed the instruction. He opened the package, and what he found inside was all of the papers that proved his conspiracy to murder the emperor. 
In that moment, he realized that Emperor Taizu knew everything about him and had decided to spare his life anyway. And from that point, Jian Xu became one of the emperor's most loyal servants. Now in the story in front of us, Saul is on the road and he gets a message and it's not in a package. It's a message from a blinding light that confronts him and he stops in his tracks. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice says to him. The message is from the risen Jesus. I know everything about you. I know your whole conspiracy. I know your plot, and it is personal. If you persecute my people, you persecute me. The witness of Jesus. Often in Acts, it's a witness about Jesus that he is raised. Here, it is Jesus himself confronting Paul and speaking to Paul, rebuking him. And rather than crush his enemy, Jesus spares him and sends him on. You're going to enter the city, not strong and confident, full of your religious police mandate. No, you're going to enter the city blind and led by the hand. And once he arrives, three days, an absolute fast, no water, no food. That is an act of deep contrition. Paul, excuse me, Saul has a lot of thinking to do about his whole life. Second, repentance. The witness of Jesus and repentance. And the Lord sends a man to Saul. Verse 10. This man's name means the gift of the Lord. And he brings to Saul this gracious gift, or actually he brings many gifts to him. Think of it, think of it if you can, from Saul's perspective. Okay, so he's sitting there. He's overwhelmed with grief and hunger and thirst. And a Christian comes to him. A man I came to arrest comes to me and I was going to lay hands on him but he lays his hands on me and he, he calls me brother Saul brother and he speaks to me and my eyes are opened and a new vocation a chosen instrument of the Lord to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. A new vocation. And do you see the heart of Jesus Christ in this moment, in this, between these two men? Do you see the heart of Jesus Christ, his grace to his enemy? His grace because on the cross, Jesus Christ took the place of an enemy of God, and he took the full punishment of an enemy of God, executed. And in that, the enmity between, between human beings and God 
is dealt with. It's decisively dealt with. So that Jesus, in his risen state, is gracious. He's gracious to all those who continue to walk as enemies of the king. It's his grace for you also. The whole church in every place is made up of the former enemies of God. Foolish people, all of us. And he knows everything that you've ever done. He knows all the time that you have spent in Vanity Fair. He knows all the money that you've spent there. He knows it all. And he's calling you to something better. What you find in Jesus is all of these things lie open to you. All of these things. Listen, to turn away from that fair and to turn to him and to look to him with both your eyes, not divided attention, both your, your, your full attention and devotion, with both your eyes to look straight ahead and to call on his name and confess your sin, to embrace baptism, the washing away of all of your sins, and to receive a new vocation, to carry his name, to be a witness to his name. Here's the big idea of the sermon this morning, and it's at the end instead of the beginning, because here's where we've come to. God calls his enemies to come on side and serve him. He called Saul of Tarsus. That means that no one is beyond his call. No one. And he is calling you to come to him, to receive his grace, and to serve him in Jesus' name, and to carry his name wherever you may go.